Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy, happy New Year from all of us to you, you. Happy, happy New Year. May all your dreams come true. Hey. Ah, <laughs> oh, we've missed you, Toby. Has, has anyone worked in the restaurant business or was that just me? Okay. Oh, I've worked in the restaurant business. For did you sing that, Cheyenne? Uh, thank I, God, no, I did not. I did not work at a Brinker. restaurant. At Chili's. <laughs> and you managed to not work at those restaurants. That's <laughs> because of people like me. <laughs> and those dumb songs. No, actually, yeah, Brinker. Chili's. I remember back in the day we used to sing that. But it was like happy birthday instead of happy new year's. You've got the it's, personality for that. So that makes do. sense to me. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> How y'all doing? Doing great. Good. I'm excited about a 2024 putting 2023 in the books. Yeah, me too. Well, I want to welcome everybody back to, this is our fifth season of the Brew Deck podcast. Season Yay! five. Woo! I don't know about y'all, but I'm excited to be back for another year. Me too. Definitely. Five years. That feels uh feels a little crazy that we've been doing this for five years. Well, I haven't been doing it for all the full five years, but Toby has. I'm the old man here. You are only <laughs> a few months. <laughs> well, what's coming up this year? Do y'all know? Uh, we've got a few things on the go. Uh, some things to just like keep a lookout for uh, and maybe touch base with your sales reps about. We are going to be doing some open houses at our uh, at our DCs, our distribution centers, to kind of bring some of our customers in, get to check out the warehouse, meet some of our staff, uh, and yeah, just lots of fun stuff going on there. Yeah, I would say that uh, it's a good opportunity if you have like a local guild. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may be interesting to have a guild meeting if it's possible up at one of our distribution centers. Right. So yeah, for those out there that are managing or on the board or something of a local guild, reach out, reach out to us or your, your, your territory manager or whatever, and maybe work that out. Yeah, for sure. You know, what's up with these, uh, Filson vests? I've never heard of them. You've never yeah. heard of the Filson vests? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. Let, let us educate you, Toby. Thank you. I see a lot of them on uh, Facebook and that's about only place I know how to navigate is Facebook, but apparently they're, they're everywhere, which is great. You're, you're aging yourself with that comment right there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, I literally just got some photos sent to me from some brewers that were wearing their vest. Cause obviously it's winter and here in Canada. So keeping them warm. Uh, Cheyenne, you want to tell us a bit about our Filson vests? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Filson vests are awarded to gold medal winners uh, at the San Francisco World Spirits Competition, the World Beer Cup, and the Canadian Brewing Awards. Oh, and GABF. So uh, lots of opportunities to win yourself a Filson vest. They are so nice. They're very cool. Yeah, they are. Adam, CBC. It's coming up soon. soon. We're 97 days away and we're going to be heading to Vegas this year. Nothing inappropriate. (laughs) (laughs) Not even a little bit. I feel like we just left Nashville like two weeks ago. Oh, yeah. So Uh, I don't know how this is coming up so soon. 97 days doesn't feel like it's that long. Yeah, and I want to I want to I want to say that Adam probably you probably didn't do the math on that one for ninety seven days, right? It's just in front of you. No, God, you no. no, 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 I, I don't know how many days were removed from the new year yet. So, yeah, right. <laughs> wow, good stuff. We uh, we as a as an organization are excited to be there yet again, and um, yeah, it's uh, something that we're counting down the days for for sure. Mm-hmm. And come make sure to come stop by the booth. Uh, we will be doing live podcast recordings there again. I'm just going to say we're doing it. I feel like we'll be doing it. We'll definitely be doing it. We'll definitely be doing it. So. <laughs> It'll be my first year doing it. So, oh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And we love when people that uh, we love when our podcast listeners come by and say hi. So please do that. 
Absolutely. Well, we got an awesome show today. This is something that we've done, I think, year in every year, right? The top 10. Top 10. Which uh, we, as a crew, uh, go through and take a re-listen of all the episodes. These are specifically in 2023, and we picked out the top 10 and we are going to go through those and provide some snippets for the listeners. So if you haven't listened to some of these, uh, uh, it'll give you the opportunity to take a little bit of info and maybe uh, roll back into the Rolodex of our of our episodes and and uh, do a re-listen. So this is uh, this is going to be a cool one. And for the kids out there, Rolodex is something that you used to keep business <laughs> oh cards gosh. in. Just saying. Uh, <laughs> that is true. I'm that handwritten card guy that I keep, you know pounding my team about, but no one's doing it (laughs) in my notepad. (laughs) Anyways, enough about me. Let's get to it. Today, we are presenting the top 10 episodes of 2023. Let's get to it. Top 10 countdown. I love this stuff. I get to put on my best Casey Kasem impersonation and bring all the greatest hits from the past year. Now let's roll right into it. This might be number 10 on our charts, but it's number one in our hearts. Totally new facility highlighted our new adjunct facility in Calgary, where we've been producing our in-house flight products since the middle of 2023. Uh, we have some great guests, including Canada Malting Project Engineer Jonathan Warwick. Uh, here he is speaking about why it's so important that we led with the flaked oats as our first product. A lot of it is obviously oats. But we also process wheat, rye, barley, uh, essentially any kind of you know cereal crop we can we can process to some degree or the other. Um, oats is the predominant one for us. That's kind of like the uh, the benchmark by which we we uh, we really test everything. It's it's the majority of, of what our customers are looking for. So um, that's where we put a lot of our focus, and so that's why we spend a lot of time with experts. Um, and consultants in the oatmeal industry, people that have been working in the in the industry for essentially 30, 40 years, um, were, were essentially the, the key design people on the project for us. Jonathan also spoke about how our flaked oats differentiate from what is currently on the market. You know, what, what we found is that um, a lot of what is being sold uh, into the brewing market as adjuncts um, it is is a good product, but it's essentially a uh, it's a food product. So the the product was produced for the food industry, uh, for the cereal industry. I'll say like specifically like you know stink cereal bars, granola, that kind of thing. Um, and so obviously their concerns and their quality uh, aspects are attuned specifically to what you know that kind of customer needs, um, which just so happens it works out very nicely for, for 90 percent of criteria that works great for brewers too um but in regards to the finer touches uh we actually have the opportunity now to obviously produce a product which is you know tailored to brewers um so things like the, de- uh, the degree of cooking the uh, flake thickness uh these kind of things that we can actually just just tweak a little bit um, and get just right for what a brewer might want from there, we spoke to a couple of brewers, uh, Jonah Hertig from Cabin, Cabin Brewing in Calgary, Alberta, and Rob McCoy from Great Notion Brewing in Portland, Oregon. Both these fine gentlemen t- tested the oats for us to compare with what they were currently using. Here's what Rob had to say. 
I know everyone's going to have an off day. Someone might run their rakes too fast on accident. How do we avoid any, 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 any sticks in the mud for our production by making things easier, less to think about uh, for all of our staff? I think our staff is fantastic. We have a killer staff, but there's always going to be something that comes up. So uh, if I have a, if I can rest assured just a little bit, we're not going to stick a mash and we're not going to lose five, 10% efficiency on some nightmare, nightmare uh, mash in water, then that makes me a lot happier. Awesome. That was a good one. Let's move, uh, move on to uh, number nine. All right. Moving along now, number nine is so fine. That's uh, our number nine spot on the countdown belongs to a discussion from a galaxy far, far away. RT, RTD2, which is really... Say it again real fast. Real fast. fast. RTD2. There you go. <laughs> Ready to drink cocktails focused on one of the hottest trends in the alcohol industry over the last couple of years. Uh, we chatted with Matt Howell of Collective Arts Brewing in Hamilton, Ontario, and Bryce Parsons of Last Best Brewing and Distilling in Calgary, Alberta. We talked on subjects from production methods to trending spirits. Uh, Toby and Heather discuss why RTDs have become so popular and why brewers are jumping on board. Over $1.6 billion in sales in this category last think, year alone. I think it was in 2021. Like it increased like 42% Gosh. in sales. Like that's insane. It's huge. Yeah. And we can't overlook it, even though, you know, our segment, if you will, is primarily craft beer, craft distilling, etc. But, mm-hmm. you know, you and I talk to customers and the rest of our podcast team are talking to customers of all type of adult beverages every day. Mm-hmm. And we see the popularity of that market and, and brewers and distillers really branching out to capture some of this market because it is, it's growing so fast. Yeah. Bryce spoke to why it is so important to stay true to the customers when branching out into RTDs. We just find for brand, um, to stay true to our brand and what we do in Last Best as an experience, um, we pride ourselves on our cocktail program. So it it's just natural to provide that package in a convenient uh, way for our, our audience or for our customers to, to take home and enjoy at home. And as we look at trends, Matt at Collective Arts shared his thoughts on what works for them. And I'm not going to lie, we live in a wonderful time as far as innovation goes. Your current like RTD lineup, you've got a rum RTD, a whiskey RTD, yeah. a gin RTD, and a vodka RTD. Yeah. Which ones do you find are the most popular out on the market? Uh, that's a really good question because, like, we, you know, we are our RTD portfolio up until uh, this past year has primarily been in the gin category as well as, as well as the vodka that vodka we kind of got more into uh uh last year and then the rum and the the whiskey are are new to to the portfolio this year uh so you know historically obviously like the gin has been the 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 big seller and the big go-to here because uh you know it's just what we've sold more now you know when i look at the portfolio now now and and what people want i would probably say you know the rum or the whiskey cocktails are are really the ones that people are crazy excited about um uh and they seem to really be drawn to like we're hoping to grow that even more than it is now 
like we still do we still do more of the gin and the vodka based ones and they're great like our vodka based one is a is a simple lemonade using real ingredients and it's it's outstanding for sure and and it's you know it, it's it's kind of my backup to the citrus and collins like it's just it's it's light and refreshing and on a hot summer day like you can't beat it but uh the other cocktails are are really quite good they're they, they're they're basically like pre like proper premix cocktails you would get at at any any cocktail bar and uh and people are very excited about it and you know my my hope is i could grow them uh quickly and uh and they'll do as well and and be you know on par with where our gin uh gin and vodka rtd sales are so um but uh yeah like i said they're they're new but they're they're really exciting and everybody seems to they it, it, as quickly as we can produce it it's being sold so it's, it's a it's a it's a good problem to have all right. Well, coming in at number eight, we have episode number three. This was live from ACSA. We were very excited to see this live episode uh, had made it into the top 10 of the season. Live episodes are kind of, you know, fun little bonus episodes for us uh, throughout the season. And the fact that this one was a top listen for folks shows the growth of the distilling sector in the craft beverage industry. We chatted with Steve Hawley from the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission about the trends that he's see- seeing in the distilling industry. Well, first and foremost, single malt whiskey is is all the rage, and you know I I I say that with a with a with a grin, but it's absolutely mm-hmm. true, mm-hmm. you know. And when we when we do get that formal definition from the TTB, which is coming, you know, any day, any week, any month now, yeah, um, I think you'll see an explosion of people um, adding single malt to their uh, repertoire. Definitely, um, I think you'll see some of the big boys. They're already doing it. Um, some of the larger spirits companies uh, investing heavily in single malt, and you'll just see a lot more people mm-hmm. um, rallying behind the idea of single yeah, malt. Yeah. So I think that's a that's a big movement. Um, I I get asked a lot: Is there kind of a a regional aspect? To single malt in America, and I would say there absolutely is, mm-hmm. and I think largely that's being driven by distillers that want to express a sense of place and express their own provenance and express their own uh, terroir. If you want to mm-hmm. get into that big debate, mm-hmm. um, so I think that's a big trend. Uh, I think that's it's important with a country this large that's making single malt whiskey for everybody to have their own perspective on that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important from a global standpoint that America has a unique perspective on single malt as well. And Mm -hmm. one of those, one of those things that we can all focus on is terroir and is sense of place and, Mm -hmm. you know, regional expressions. So I think that's a big trend that's going to continue. While live on the trade show floor of the ACSA, we also spoke to Caitlin Bartlemé and Joseph O'Sullivan, the distillers at Clear Creek Distillery in Hood River, Oregon, who shared with us their favorite seminars of the weekend. I, uh, I this particular ACSA, Sydney Jones's seminar on cross country whiskey was phenomenal. Uh, easily, I mean, there's so many good, uh, so many good speakers, but that the way she moderated, her ease, her comedy, the value of what she was uh, directing, in terms of like what her basic questions were, it was easy to understand. It was an incredible panel of talented distillers. I 
think it was yeah I, I, I would not be surprised if it was not my runaway favorite of this year but I do have to also say that Nicole Austin's uh, seminar last year on how to win awards was a, was a real sneaker for me mm-hmm. I didn't expect to really uh, I didn't really know what to expect in that mm-hmm. and I went to it and it was so touching and I thought it was so smart mm-hmm. uh, and ever since I've you know I, I I'm really happy to call Nicole a friend oh fantastic what about you Caitlin did you have a favorite so far um one I absolutely agree with Joseph 100% Sydney's pre- presentation was great the panelists were amazing um but I would like to um give a shout out to the uh, seminar on corporate culture that was put on by Paul Letko of Hugh Spirits right so both both two people from Hugh Spirits getting called out um for their really great uh, offerings here at, at the conference um I just really appreciated the the seemingly forward thinking and it's unfortunately forward thinking because there are so many companies and cultures that are clinging to these old ways of how they treat their employees and so I really appreciated seeing um, this really great group of leaders that are saying the quiet part out loud and that it's clearly not working right Right. these are principles that um, have have been part of corporate culture in the United States since you know World War II and um, we certainly have decades of seeing that it doesn't create a positive work like that life balance and coming in at number seven we have episode number 15 h2o uh, in this episode we dove into the science of water chemistry this episode was an interesting one for us to plan uh, i think that we were all a little nervous to tackle such a technical topic was that very just me nervous. or were you guys nervous yeah very nervous <laughs> <laughs> Uh, luckily we had a really great guest to help guide us through. This was the second time appearing on the podcast for Aaron justice. He first joined us in our season two, episode 23, dude, let's start a brewery, which was our highest played episode of all time. Uh, we obviously wanted to bring him back and this time we got to pick his brain about water chemistry. Uh, Aaron has a really cool career background, which I just wanted to touch upon because I I thought it was so interesting. Uh, He was a TV meteorologist for 13 years. I think probably his TV experience kind of helps him with his his podcast voice. Mm -hmm. Uh, He made the switch to the brewing industry after he got into home brewing, which I think is a tale that all of us are very familiar with. He worked for many years at Ballast Point before opening his own brewery, East Village Brewing Company in San Diego, California. Let's take a listen to his thoughts on the most important steps when first opening a brewery. Yeah, I think the first thing you want to do is get a water report. Uh, Just know where your water is coming from. Most cities will give you a water report. Here in San Diego, it's very detailed. And uh, also here in San Diego, because it's it's a large county, uh, we have three major water treatment facilities. So just developing a relationship with your local uh, city and a water treatment plant and being able to get reports goes a long way. Uh, then uh, beyond that, I would also then take that water because the report is only so good because uh, it changes. Uh, throughout the year. So what you also want to do is take a sample and send it into the lab and just know what you're dealing with. Uh, There are many labs uh, around, just uh, you can Google it, uh, that specializes in uh, water analytics and also maybe do a lab that also can uh, measure wort so uh, that you can also just see and verify that what you're trying to achieve is actually happening. 
Water chemistry can be a very dense topic for any brewer or brewery owner or podcast host. Uh, Also in this episode, Aaron helps us break down what he believes are the most important metrics of water chemistry to focus on when brewing. Really, I think people think of of water chemistry and you see all these water calculators and and your head uh, explodes. And that's totally understandable. And I've given some water talks uh, for the Master Brewers Association. And uh, I I look out into that audience and people's eyes just glaze over. And so and it's I I get it. I used to be that way. And I I took this deep dive into water and I, I, I just say, you know, just carbon filter your water and hit your target mash pH. And, and all, all's good. If you really want to dive further in, uh, you can absolutely do that. But uh, that's my first advice. Th- those two things. Analyze your water and then uh, dechlorinate. And of course, hit your target mass pH. And we can talk more about that later. All right. Uh, moving on to our sixth most listened episode of season four. Uh, it was one of our episodes celebrating Women's History Month uh, called The Her Story of Brewing. Uh, Cheyenne and I kind of took over hosting duties for the month of March to celebrate uh, women in the fermented beverage industry. And we had a very special co-host for the month as well, uh, Natasha Pyscar, production supervisor at Canada Malting and the Pink Boots Canada chapter president. As the title of the episode implies, we were discussing the history of women in the brewing industry with our guest, Harry Ferendorf, who uh, is no stranger to the podcast and probably no stranger to anybody in the brewing industry in North America. She is the founder of the Pink Boots Society and Tia Edmondson Morton. Uh, activist and historian from the Oregon Hops and Brewing Archives in Oregon State University. But women have they've they've always been involved in brewing. Um, and um, that is certainly the case today. Um, but it you know goes back to us hearing about Ninkasi um, is probably the most prominent um, figure who was featured in the history of of ancient brewing. But women have brewed all over the world and all throughout time. And there certainly were other goddesses at the time um, who were uh, linked to brewing in the Middle East. So Egyptian goddesses, um, other um, characters um, from ancient Mesopotamia in ancient Babylon, um, and again, throughout the world. So there were fertility, Zulu fertility goddesses in Africa. Um, There were uh, women who um, were part of Finnish legends um, and also women who were brewing beer um, in real life uh, in villages, brewing sati in villages. Um, Latin America, there certainly were um, indigenous women in North America, women in Nepal. So women um, throughout time have have made beer, um, whether that's in real life or in stories or in um, in myths and legends. Um, and I think as we shift, what we often think about is again, either Ninkasi or we shift to thinking about England and Europe, um, 
And again, so throughout uh, throughout literature, throughout real life history, um, there was St. Bridget of Kildare, who lived in the fifth, fifth century. She was one of Ireland's patron saints. Hildegard de Bingen's another one that uh, many people know. She was an 11th century German Benedictine abbess, and she also was a scientific writer. And she wrote this really famous set of books called Physica, which contains what is regarded as the first reference to hops being used in beer as a preservative. Um, there's another woman from um, the East Anglian town of Lynn. Her name is Marjorie Kemp. She lived in the early 15th century. She uh, was a brewer, but she also owned a horse mill. Um, and later she became a visionary and a mystic. And Mother Louse was an alewife in Oxford, and she's uh, a really popular depiction. And she's one of those women who is wearing what looks like a witch's hat. Um, but she was an Oxford alewife who sold beer commercially in the mid 17th century. And really, it's at that point that brewing in Europe started to change from being a female dominated profession to one that was dominated by men. Terry was one of the first female craft brewers in Western U.S., and she's shared some of her early experiences in the craft brewing industry. So the obstacles I saw were these people who were asking, I don't like to say they were mean or anything. I just think they were asking the wrong questions because they didn't realize that there were other ways to do things. And some of those people that asked those questions asked me those questions over the phone and would not even meet me in person. As I said, now they're my friends and they would be mortified to know. And I'd hear little snippets like, oh, remember when you came through our brewery? Yeah, so-and-so said to me or so-and-so said to so-and-so, do you really think that a woman could make good beer? Well, guess what? You give me the chance, I proved you wrong. And having someone like myself and a few other women out there proving those kind of assumptions about whether women can make good beer or not, holy cow, how many great Americans? Great American Beer Festival medals has my have my recipes one and I brewed those beers, you know. So uh, so, yes, I think we've proven many times now that women can make great beer. Um, so I think that, you know, those kind of obstacles need to stop. Um, there's other weirdnesses that I have not had to experience that have taken place with men um, harassed, you know, sexually harassing or worse women in the business, not just brewers, but other women in the business, you know, women who sell beer, distribute beer. I mean, this intimidation thing and this uh, sexual predation thing has got to stop and the perpetrators need to be absolutely positively punished. Um, that's not the role of Pink Boot Society. It's the role of society. Moving on to our fifth episode, uh, which was our other Women's Day episode, uh, or sorry, Women's History Month episode entitled I Can Brew Myself Flowers. Natasha was back again as a special co-host with Cheyenne and I, and our guests included Brittany Faye from Madtree Brewing in Cincinnati, Ohio, and Carly Pretty McDonald from Tofino Brewing in Tofino, B.C., both Carly and Brittany came on to tell us about uh, what their breweries are doing for International Women's Day. And shout out to Brittany for bringing us some of their Dolly RTD for us to enjoy when we were in Nashville. It was just delicious. Not only was it delicious, but it was very fitting for Nashville. It really was. <laughs> Something else really awesome that was kind of brought to our attention that you do is this Ascending Women program. Oh, yes, that's 
It's it's such a really cool program. And it actually kind of all started with our International Women's Day a couple of years ago. Um, we brewed our beer inspired by Malala. And this was right before we had to shut down for COVID. We had a a local woman come in and just kind of we just had like a, a chat. It was about I, I can't remember the subject now. It was a couple of years ago and COVID always feels like it added five years to everyone's lives. It definitely <laughs> did. <laughs> um, but it, it was a way that we invited all of the identifying females of Madtree. We came together. We had like a little luncheon. Uh, we celebrated our beer that we had packaged the day before. And from there, it inspired our private events team and our consumer experience team to put together something once a month where um you know we're we're pulling in people that can talk about different subject matters that yes it does like appeal mostly to women but it can expand outside of that mm-hmm. um so for example for february we just had one actually it was last night um where the panel discussed self-love and it's either local women that are brought in um, that are a part of the panel or at least close by. And it's just a couple hours of sitting and listening to this panel. Uh, we have women-owned businesses that are also represented there. And it's just kind of a way to build that community um, locally. Carly also spoke about the collaboration with the women and non-binary individuals at Tofino Brewing for their Pink Boots Brew. Well, I just didn't want it to be like, this is my brew. I wanted it to definitely be like, no, this is all of ours. You guys are the ones like they're the faces essentially in the tasting room. They they're the ones that sell it. I'm not. I don't do that. That's not my strong suit. That's their strong suit. So I wanted them to be like really passionate about it and and be excited to sell something because like how how else are you going to sell something so passionately if you're not involved like mm-hmm. i don't know it, it it just it felt right to keep them included and and they came up with a great idea so i think uh next wednesday when we actually brew this thing it'll be awesome and fun and i hope i have a good turnout in terms of bodies because i don't want to grain out by myself <laughs> <laughs> yeah nobody well, wants to do that <laughs> No way. That's uh, awesome that you're involving so many people. It's I love hosting folks on the brew day and like having them learn something about, you know, what we do in in production, right? So it's really cool to hear that you have a bunch of folks who are gonna come and help you and have helped with the development um of beer. All right. Our fourth most popular episode was episode number seven, Going for Gold. In this episode, we were joined by Graham Wyth, head brewer and co-founder of Parallel 49 Brewing by day and a nationally ranked BJCP judge by night. Uh, Whether you've entered many competitions before or you're getting ready to enter your first, Graham shares his insider knowledge of what judges are looking for and what advice when choosing which competitions to enter. He drops some pro tips on how to prepare your beers for competition season and also what to do to improve your beers when you receive your competition feedback from judges the one thing i like i recommend is uh, one is try and do the bjcp uh, course or even just look into it a bit um but the biggest thing is uh, all these 
these categories, you know, like Irish stout and whatnot, um, they're all guidelines. Uh, so if you have like, if you have a beer, like a, a really good example of this is, uh, I, I finally won a world beer cup, which is like, Oh God, it took me 10 years, but that was awesome. Um, with our, uh, with our pale ale, but I did not enter it in the American pale ale category because I thought it would get destroyed by all the delicious, hoppy American pale ales. Um, so I entered it in the uh, English ale category um, because the judges aren't going to know what's on the label. They don't know anything about this beer. They just know that there's a liquid in front of them that someone's calling, you know, say a stout or or whatever. Um, and they're going to judge it that way. So if you have like a good selling beer and you make it and you're proud of it and, you know, maybe you call it an IPA, but it's like, I don't know, 4% in hoppy, you know, maybe that's like in a session, I, you know, like a, maybe that's a, a, a American pale category. So be really weary about the categories you enter because you can kind of, uh, you can get your, you know, your butt handed to you. Um, and also, um, I know a lot of breweries, they have like a marketing person and they, they kind of pawn off the entries on marketing because it's a bit of a marketing thing. But if you're, uh, if you're marketing, people don't know, um, you know, too much about the judging aspect of things. They're just going to look at, you know, what the style says on, uh, on the product and just going to enter it in the closest thing. But that's not always the best uh, route. The best route is to be really like take a look at the guidelines of the competition because your competition can have their own set of guidelines and what what best represents the liquid you make. You know, maybe your Am American Amber Ale is better as like an Irish red or whatever. And there's no shame in entering it in one that's going to do better in my mind. Basically, just kind of sticking what what style category most closely resembles what we're submitting. Yeah. And, and, and another thing, too, um, as a, we've just entered a couple of competitions, um, my team and I, like, we'll go open up the last, like, three or four um, pack runs we've done because we have a library stock of every run we package. Um, and it's not always the freshest one either. Like, uh, you know, I'd love to say every beer we make here is the best beer ever. And it's always on point. Um, <laughs> but there is a threshold to be like, yeah, it's good. It's just not like I've had better batches of it. Um, and we've seen, you know, like the one that was packed like two months ago versus the one from last week. It's just, it's just super good still. Mm -hmm. So let's enter that one. Um, and, and it's worth taking the time to do so, I think, um, just to make sure like you get the natural variances between batches inevitably. So take the time to go like, you know, grab the last few runs and, and see which ones are best. We totally get why this episode was so popular. Uh, we love competition season two because we want to support you in every step of your craft journey, cheer you on and celebrate with you in your successes. Uh, going back to our, our little conversation earlier, this is uh, why we launched our signature gold medal Filson Vest program for the winners at the World Beer Cup, the Great American Beer Festival, the Canadian Brewing Awards and the San Francisco World Spirits Competition. Love those Filson Vests. Uh, moving on to our number three episode was entitled Bach to the Future. Some of our favorite episodes are when we talk about beer cells, at least some of my favorite episodes are when we talk about beer cells. I don't want to speak for everybody else on the team. Um, my favorite's when you're on. That's it. Uh, oh, just when you're on. Toby. Awesome, Toby. <laughs> and Bach. 
And box. And box. (laughs) (laughs) So as uh, you could tell by the uh, name of the episode, uh, we were talking about box. Um, It was really great because Cheyenne and I actually got to talk a little bit about the history of box at the beginning of the episode, uh, which was really fun. And then we had the pleasure of chatting with Chaz Nemechuk, head brewer and owner of Kingmaker Brewing in Jacksonville, Florida, about the box style and how they market their box to customers. I went to school for history, so like being a historian by trade and then a brewer, it kind of doing traditional styles and Bach and and finding like recipes from 1909, like the Kaiser American classic American Bach recipes, like that's that's where I get my jimmies off. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's. I see. When I was like studying for my uh, Cicero exam, that was my favorite part was learning about all of the history and how far back beer goes and how the styles oh, yeah. became the styles. I'm like, so I fully, I fully understand that. It's one of my favorite oh, yeah. parts. Well, Bach is such a cool history, and I was doing just some light reading just so I didn't sound like a moron. But uh, <laughs> you know, this it's it's been it's crazy how just the evolution of Bach comes from. Mm-hmm. is directly tied to technology, not necessarily brewing itself. Who do you find is coming in and buying the box more? Like, is it like beer nerds? Is it other brewers? Is it the general public in Jacksonville that is like, <laughs> I, I love a Bach and I'm coming here for this? Or do you like find, because you maybe made it such like a specialty when you were like rolling them out through the pandemic that it just kind of like created this demand for them for you? Uh, well, if anyone tells you that there's a high demand for box, they're lying to you. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but basically the people that come in, uh, it's like the people that are, like we find a really strong niche of people that are just, they like craft beer, but they're sick of the lack of varieties because mm-hmm. there's so many brewers that are just interested in brewing like, like very hyper-focused styles or like... You know, it's all IPA all the time because that's all they care about. Yeah. And then kind of training new customers. It's like, oh, well, what's the box? Like, oh, it's kind of what beer used to be. So, so uh, you know, dark, flavorful, multi lager. Mm-hmm. Now, people that, you know, like IPAs aren't going to like it or they'll you know, like it as a change of pace. It's, I mean, you can't go wrong with just offering something different than what people are used to getting 99%. Then we were joined by Mario Cortez, head brewer and co-owner of Here Today Brewery and Kitchen in Seattle, Washington, which at the time had just been open for only four months. So we picked Mario's brain on what inspired their Bach and what malts are quintessential for their style. It's so interesting. Like, I feel like this happens a lot in the industry. I mean, not just with beer, but with other things as well, but specifically with beer, I'll have an idea to brew, you know, a random, a random style like Bach, which, you know, doesn't really see a lot of attention in the craft scene. Mm -hmm. And now there's like four other breweries in town that are doing one. We're sitting here on a podcast talking about the style (laughs) specifically. It's it's so interesting how that like kind of zeitgeist, you know, element plays into it. But yeah, um, for us, you know, I grew up, in Texas, like I mentioned, and when I started drinking, you know, I turned 21, and uh, at that time, Shiner Bach was like the closest thing we had to, you know, quote unquote craft beer. Um, you know, it it wasn't the best beer on the market, but it was you know a more robust flavor than any other light beer 
on the shelf. Um, I always felt like if I was going somewhere like a party or, you know, a punk show or something, I was reaching for a shiner. And since, you know, those days have kind of gone, like you don't see them on the market anymore. I really wanted to reimagine what that beer can be. Um, that's a lot of what we've done with the beers here at here today is, uh, taking a style that we really love and putting it through the here today filter. Like, what does that look like? How do we make it a little more modern? How do we give it our own personal touch? And uh, that's how we came up with this idea of like a Texas Bach. So um, basically with ours, like I started with a traditional single Bach German beer uh, recipe and gave it a little Vienna lager twist. So, you know, keeping the body really light, but, incorporating some more like lager, dark lager flavors, mm-hmm. um, which I feel like Shiner, as much as it was a Bach on the label, was always just kind of like a, a light, dark lager. So wanted to play with that idea and then used uh, American Liberty hops instead of uh, Old World hops just to kind of give it a little, a little bit more of an American feel. Can you tell us a little bit about um, kind of the grain bill for this? Um, yeah, I mean, that's another where, another spot where it was like bringing in some elements of a Vienna lager, which initially when we were talking about doing this beer was we just wanted to make a dark lager, um, kind of fitting for the end of winter and fitting for the weather in Seattle right now. So we, we started with um, German Pilsner malt, which anytime I use um, Pilsner, I try and use floor malted uh, just because it has a, a little extra bite to it and a little bit more of a character than traditional Pilsner. So I started with that as a base, uh, blended in some uh, Munich roasted malt and some Vienna uh, malt as well. Again, just to add like a little more character to the body, uh, give that kind of impression of roastiness without going too far into that crystal malt territory. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then just a massive amount of Cara Red because I'm a big fan of what that malt can bring to uh, the finish of a beer. It's really dry as this like kind of caramel note to it on its own. Uh, and it just br- it brings a really beautiful kind of garnet, like red highlight to any beer you add it to. And moving on to our number two most listened podcast episode of 2023 and rolling along the same path as number three. It's evident again that listeners in season four and Heather like to hear us carry on about beer styles. <laughs> I do. In our year-end countdown of the top 10 episodes, Numero Deuce was episode 17, Skills to Brew the Pills. In this one, we coerced a few industry solids that uh, are making some great pilsners to spend a few minutes with us to spill the beans. First, we caught up with Blake Inamark, who is the head brewer at Tail Gunner in Calgary, Alberta. Blake gives us a little insight as to European versus American pills. What do you find the differences between a European style uh, Pilsner malt versus a North American style Pilsner malt? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Like for me, like I feel a little bit like a a cultural appropriator, you know, for for somebody that is excited about brewing European style beers and using European, you know, kind of archaic brewing techniques. Like in my opinion, if you're going to, if we're going to appropriate someone's culture, we should probably be using their ingredients. <laughs> and uh, my, my, my favorite way to put this is like, you know, if you're going to make a, you know, a Neapolitan style pizza, you're going to use double O flour. You're going to use the nice, you know, DOP tomatoes. And that really is what kind of takes like, you know, your average pizza pie to something that has a little bit more sense of place and, and uh, history to it. Right. He also dives in and gives us some insight to decoction mashing 
and why they do it. And can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what are the benefits of doing a decoction mash versus doing um, a single infusion or doing a step mash? Are there any sort of flavor differences that you're seeing in the beers? Yeah, I mean, to be to be honest, to me, it's not even in the same territory, um, especially for, you know, if you're, if you're trying to brew. Well, I mean, for us, Czech beers is what I'm most passionate about. Um, but, you know, a lot of German styles, too, which we we do kind of rigorous uh, decoction mashing on. I mean, the the flavor benefit for me um would be one of the biggest things i mean the other thing too there's a lot of a lot of czech brewers that would say you know you can't brew a a proper czech lager without decoction mashing it's it's a uh it's a necessary component of um of brewing that style of beer and that's something you know if i'm again like if i'm going to be you know a young canadian dude trying to honor you know hundreds of years of history of Czech brewing, you know, kind of doing it their way to me seemed like the only way. Cause I'd, I'd actually had never done decoction mashing before being a tail gunner. We, we tried once at OT and it was like scooping buckets of grain and running it through like a diaphragm pump. And it was, it was a real pain. I mean, that's what ignited my love, my love for, for sure. But um, yeah, so there's, you know, there's the, uh, there's the, there's the tradition that's there to be honored. Um the flavor, like I was saying, we get that purple character in the Czech pills, which like I just absolutely love. Uh, it, it gets me every time because that's also our simplest beer, right? That's it's one malt and one hop, um, but it's by far the most complex beer that we offer, I think. Um, uh, so, yeah, there's the flavor benefit. We also, uh, you know, with, with some of the German inspired beers, like we do a Kolsch um, that we did a collab last year with with Brandon from Aveling and. You know, we got a really nice, snappy, crackery malt profile that I think would have been would have been there if it hadn't been decocted, but it would have been a little bit more um, subdued. So you kind of get that with the German beer is a little bit more snappy and crackery. Um, but the technical benefits for me uh, are better, better head retention, better lacing in the glass, better foam stability. Blake gets much more in depth in this episode around decoction, what it takes and why he feels it's important. So I absolutely suggest going back into the episode library and pulling this one up for a listen if you're interested. We also had the opportunity to chat with Jake Nelson, head brewer at Horse Thief Hollow Brewery in Chicago. First, Heather gives him a much deserved pat on the back on the success of his award winning Little Wing using Great Western Malting Superior Pills. The Little Wing Pilsner, that is an American style Pilsner, correct? Yeah, you know, uh, we've been I, we've been calling it American style pilsner, but there's no corn or anything in it. Um, it doesn't really fit super nicely into any of those like individual categories. Um, but you know, we brew it here and we use American malts. Um, so for us, yeah, it, it's an American pilsner, but it doesn't adhere strictly to you know say the use of, of corn as the Brewers Association style guidelines would suggest. Yeah, we, sure. we actually entered it in the international pilsner category at the World Beer Cup and uh, Great American Beer Fest. That's very cool. And so you'd said that, you know, as you kind of were able to slow down a little bit and you weren't having to rush through all of your beers as, as quickly, you were able to perfect this beer. Do you mind if I ask how long does it take from brew day to glass to get this beer made? Well, a lot of times we can get it done in three weeks, but I really um, shoot for, you know, a good four or five weeks on it. Um, And when I'm really lucky, I I can hold on to it for eight weeks. And, um, you know, that's ideal. But a lot of times, you know, we can make a great 
fills there and put it out in three weeks, but four to five weeks is really my target. For sure. Very cool. So I'm going to back up a little bit just because I keep on, you know, I want to shine the light on this uh, gold medal win that you have here. So you're utilizing the Great Western Malting Pilsner as your base malt. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about why you choose that malt, maybe a uh, flavor profile, color, um, if you're seeing any sort of changes in your brewing process? Yeah, I mean, the flavor profile, it's just super clean. It's got a great grainy characteristic. I mean, some of these things I'm saying are, are generally the textbook definition of Pilsner malt. And and I think that the Great Western Pilsner just, just hits all those notes for me. So um, I love it and I'm confident in using it as, as a base in um, a lot of my beers to be on the, the Pilsner. Um, I use some of it in... Uh, one of our hoppy beers that I split with two row. Um, but yeah, it's just super clean and I love it. It's just got that malty grainy Pilsner, <laughs> Pilsner malt character. It's a, Pilsners are pretty versatile. I, I am a brewer by trade and used to brew commercially and we would use Pilsners for pretty much all of our, our base malts and, and all of our beers. They're great, great malts. Yeah. And, and prior to coming back here, I worked at a place called Weiner Beer Company. We were specializing in, um, you know, American interpretation of Belgian beer, but we, we use Pilsner as the uh, standard base malt. So um, that's really where I learned to love Pilsner malt and, and it became my favorite um, over pale ale or two row. I mean, when I started here, it was pale ale malt was like the big standard base malt and i've definitely shifted over towards pilsner malt uh i just really prefer that um that graininess and versus something a little more malty and bready and it gives you a really clean you know backbone to play off of congrats again to jake and we appreciate him joining us then we ended the episode with a segment of everyone's favorite ask abby where she provided some insight into grain bills for head retention and pilsners there are a lot of different ways that you can get great head retention, but that pH and protein can also come from your mouth. So this is how they factor into haze stability, mouthfeel, that types of things. Um, a couple of my favorites are chit malts, um, which undergoes like a shorter germination period. It's low in color, so it's great for those lighter beers like a German Pilsner or a Pilsner in general. Um, you can use anywhere between 5 to 15% chit in your grain bill to assist in that foam stability. Um, you can also use between 5 and 10% of flaked barley in the place of chits. The only thing is I've found that it kind of affects the, the flavor a little bit. So if that's something that you don't prefer, I would go with chit. Um, typically, I don't want to divert too much from the base malts that I'm using. Um, but you can use both of these with your base malts and specialty malts to help with that retention and stability. Abby also gives her take on North American Pills malt options. Something that, that wasn't on the list, not just just curious on um we talked german pilsners but uh what about american pilsners if somebody wanted to, to to stick with like a north american option for a pilsner that they're brewing i would go with canada maltings uh pilsen malt we've got a lot of different pilsen malts in our portfolio that you can give a shot um i would go with more noble hops and not quite so um chewy uh because you're looking for a really subtle flavor you're looking for a light color um but again we've got so many things in our portfolio that can give a shot yeah absolutely i think uh 
the Great Western Pure Idaho is one that uh, we've had yeah. in our portfolio for quite some time. Is a, mm-hmm. a really good option. I mean, obviously, it's a some you know a different um, you know different taste altogether um, than what you typically see out of your your European or, or German malt. But it's a, it's a really good option for somebody looking for an American pilsner, and uh, it's a that's a great one as well. Mm-hmm. And ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent news story. I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. Cannonball. <laughs> Anybody know where that movie's from? Anchorman. There you go. I don't that don't sound like Ron Burgundy, but thought I'd give a it a try. A little bit. I think you did good. Thanks. Well, this is the one we've all been waiting for. The number one most listened to episode of season four, 2023. Drum roll, please. No one? Am I the only one? (laughs) Yeah, there we go. Episode four, don't lose your head. And I think I just did lose my head with uh, that terrible intro, but regardless, (laughs) I don't know. We'll we'll, we'll power through it. In this one, the crew had John Downing, brewmaster at Niagara College, as well as Jeremy Cross, quality manager at Jack's Abbey Craft Loggers, join us to share some tips, pointers, and secrets on how to gain and maintain that lovely frothy foam. First, we start by some snippets from our convo with John Downing. We talk a lot of hops, but we didn't want to pass up the opportunity to discuss the maybe overlooked hops in head retention. So do you have any advice for people trying to produce a hazy IPA with great foam? Um, hop products. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, YCH and the other guys, uh, Hop Steiner, everybody, they, they put out uh, products that have isomerized uh, hop extracts and that sort of thing. And, and those work perfectly for maintaining the foam and for uh, creating the, uh, um, the correct balance. You know, you get your, you get your aroma, you get your, um, the, the other attributes you're looking for out of, out of your dry hopping mostly aroma and flavor um plus they you've got the isomerization there it's so pre-isomerized so uh, by adding that in you've you've, you've uh, basically leveled the playing field again so your beer foam should be as good as it would have been otherwise you've also got to remember that the foam sorry <clears throat> the proteins that form the haze are not the same proteins that form the bubbles so that's a balance too, is to make sure you get those two right. And uh, I think more in the bubbles. If you think, if you think about uh, uh, the, the the well, when you're making a cocktail like a whiskey sour or something like that, you're using egg white, which is albumin, which is one of the proteins in malt. And when when you whisk that up and shake it up, you get a really nice foam and froth on top that sticks and stays in a liquid that would not normally hold. First of all, it's not carbonated. John also highlights that foam and head retention aren't always ingredient based, but factors and challenges outside of the brewing process as well. What can you do on, you know, for package product to help maintain that um, packaging in your brewery and being shipped out and being shipped all over the world? Like, how do you maintain that um, head retention? Well, I mean, it's all about, it really is. I mean, no, no matter what we do in the field, in the malt house or in the brewery, it's all what happens when it gets into that glass at the end of the day. Uh, luckily, people are moving away from drinking beer out of bottles or cans and they're drinking them in glasses more and more than in past years. Mm-hmm. So now it, that that visual part of, brew, of of drinking and enjoying a beer is very important. And, uh, you know, the, you, you touched on the clean beer glass. I mean, the, the enemies of 
foam, uh, you know, uh, detergents and fats. So as long as your glasses are clean and beer clean, um, you, if you you know they're not going to be clean if you, when you pour that beer and there's all the bubbles are sticking to the side of it, uh, rather than nucleating from a point at the bottom of the glass. Um, if your phone disappears rapidly, that's because you know the glass probably wasn't cleaned and still had someone's lip balm or lipstick on it. That uh, you know the fats from that are just breaking down the phone as fast as you can pour it in basically um it's kind of cool if you think about the different methods of uh how beers are poured uh from you know casks where it's a hand pump where you it's it's a gentle delicate pour um with very little carbonation coming out to uh the guinness stout tap or, or the can with the widget in it where it's all about shearing bubbles to make the bubbles smaller uh and you have it takes time you have to you know i don't know if anyone's been to the guinness storehouse in Dublin, but they actually teach you how to do it properly and takes like a minute and a half, I think, to pour Guinness properly. You have to pour it and then stop and then pour again. And you know, they let the foam settle out, they let the cascade clear. And you know, that's about creating more dense proteins on the surface of the beer for the uh to keep the the the, the foam and uh stay more stable and more uh, thick, uh for one of a better <laughs> term. Um if you look at a Pilsner pour, I mean at the other end of the scale with the the, the you know, the uh, increase in the number of people buying those uh, Pilsner side pour taps. Mm-hmm. Same sort of idea. I mean, I, I remember going to beer stoves in Germany and it would take you about two or three minutes to get a beer because they'd be pouring them, letting them sit, pouring them, letting them sit. Jeremy Cross, quality manager at Jack's Abbey Craft Loggers, jumped on to share some knowledge. CJ Pinzone brings up the famed UC Davis professor, Charlie Manfort, and how he wrote the book on foam. She's written many books on foam. Um, I remember the, the first day I sat down at, in school and he introduced himself. He he said something and I was like, I, I went to my desk mate. I said, I, I don't know if I heard that right. Is, did he just call himself the Pope of Foam? And uh, my desk mate said, yeah, that's, that's his name. <laughs> I think that might be one of the best brewing nicknames you could have. It's a pretty good title. <laughs> it is. And, and you know, I, I will in no way profess to be the Pope of home or the Archbishop of home. I'm more of like a, uh, a street preacher on a upside down milk carton, like screaming into the ether about, you know, hydrophobic polypeptide, stuff like that. And then Jeremy talks about testing that breweries can do for head retention and properties. There are a lot of different tests. Some can be very expensive. You know, Halfman's has the uh, the machine you can do the Nibom test on, Nibom test on, um, where essentially you have this like electrodes going into the you know into the foam and then dropping with the foam and counting the time. And I remember I was actually talking to Jamie Shear, who's uh, who's the longtime quality lead at Harpoon. About, you know, I figured they have all these resources and they might have one of those. And I said, do you, do you have one of these? He's like, no, we have eyes. Like we, <laughs> we know that we know what it looks like, but why, why do we want to spend $20,000 on a machine that, that we can look at? But there are cheaper versions, uh, cheaper ways you can measure foam. Um, if you went on ASBC and looked at the Sigma method, um, that's one we do. Uh, it's very cheap. It's very easy. It's not of all the testing we do, it's the least precise and the least accurate. But for that matter, so is reading uh, wort or beer with a hydrometer. Um, but we do that too, right? If you had five people read a hydrometer, you're going to get five different answers on what the uh, gravity is. 
Um, so a quick overview of the Sigma method, it's pretty easy. You have this, this glass funnel, um, and you're basically going to pour beer into it, create a foam up to about this 800 milliliter mark. The funnel, the, the glass funnel has a little tap on the bottom. And essentially you're going to let that foam sit for 30 seconds. Um, you're going to drain off any foam that's collapsed into beer and then wait, you know, something like 200 seconds. And then essentially you're going to pour off the beer again, collapse the foam with, with uh, isopropyl alcohol. Um, and, and you're going to measure the time and the, the, you're going to have time versus amount of foam you've collected versus amount of beer. You just plug that into a calculator. It's going to give you a number. Um, that number in and of itself doesn't mean a lot, but if you're doing things to try to, um, it, to try to improve your head retention, it gives you enough data points to to say, okay, the sigma number was at 87 for this beer before we started working on this this particular project, and now it jumped up to 103 um, consistently. So the one thing I would suggest is if you do go on the ASBC, look at the method. Um, because of its um, subjectivity, if you have multiple people in your lab or multiple people who might be measuring your foam, try to have the same person do it each time because it, it, it is subject to how they pour it and how they time it and when they decide to, to stop collecting the beer off the bottom of the sample cock. Um, because all these little things that change can change your sigma number quite a bit. So if you have the same person doing it, it gives you kind of continuity. And, and while your number may not be accurate, it'll be more precise. Well, congrats to all of the top 10 today mm-hmm. and really everybody for joining us in 2023. We had a, a bunch of episodes and hopefully uh, we continue to you know, educate and have a little bit of fun on our shows going forward. Let's not forget season four was our award winning year. We no. crushed it. Yay. Yay. That's why we are in our crushy era. I'm so proud of That's us. That's right. And we uh, we are excited to be back for season five. We've been talking about season five. We know what's what's on the lineup for a majority of the year, and it's some good stuff. I'll tell you, some really good stuff. Yeah, it's going to be a fun year. Yeah, and we're absolutely stoked again to see everybody at upcoming CBC in Las Vegas. <sighs> 97 days. What's the old saying about Las Vegas? What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? I don't think that counts in this situation. We're going to have microphones. (laughs) We're going to actually post it. (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) Yeah, good point. Our social media managers will be there. (laughs) Yeah, I think I just need to keep my mouth shut. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, nice. Sweet. All right. Well, another good episode and uh, congrats to, to all the winners today, if you will. Everybody's winners in our books from 2023. And uh, hey, really looking to seeing everybody soon. And uh, yeah, keep your ears to the uh, the phone or the computer or whatever you got in whatever fashion you listen to to, to podcasts and make sure you tune in and keep it on uh, the Brudeck podcast all the time. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast so you never miss an episode. That's right. Bye, everybody. Bye.